Um, hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. Uh, I'm Matt Risby, hello. And joining me as always via the medium of satellite technology is the man with the golden arm. It's Ed Davis. How are you doing sir? All right. Yeah, very good. Just um, coming down from heroin. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, I know I'm good. Uh, I'm a bit tired because I've had a 60 hour work week and I'm looking at down the barrel of a second one this week. Mm. But uh, it's uh, a very short burst of activity before the game that I'm working on comes out. So once I get through this, it'll be pretty much quiet through to Christmas. But yeah, it's pretty tiring. <laughs> mm. I may have made a, a bad kind of reference to a film in which Frank Sinatra plays a heroin addict, but you might need some genuine brown to get through this weekend. <laughs> yeah, we'll see yeah. how that pans out. Self-drugs, kids, it's it's really bad for you. It's been a massive... Yeah, pretty much. It's been a massive week for Disney. It's the D23 Expo we get kind of a lot of these kind of big trade shows and, you know, it kind of garners a lot of press coverage. And we've talked about it before, how movie release slates are being kind of talked about, like Apple product launches. And this is no exception. It's like a three-day orgy of uh, of Disney news. And I suppose the biggest piece of news coming out of that fuck pile is that Colin Trevorrow has been given the job of directing Star Wars Episode Nine. How do you feel about that, Ed? I'm kind of ambivalent on it because this is it's news that was rumored for a long time so it didn't come as a shock mm. i think if it came completely out of the blue i'd be aghast because uh although i didn't hate jurassic world and i don't think you did either we were both just kind of mixed on it it, it the direction wasn't kind of it's one of its strong distinguishing points mm. uh, and based on his two films i'm not sure he could really bring much to it in the way that you know, J.J. Abrams seems to be bringing something to Ryan Johnson. It seems to be bringing some, hopefully will bring something to episode eight or Gareth Edwards will hopefully bring something to Rogue One. Mm. So he's, he, to me, seems like the weak link in that chain. But, you know, we're, what, four years out from it coming out. So who knows what could happen in that time? Maybe being involved early enough in the process, you know, the, the final product will come out a little less uh, rushed than Jurassic World. But, you know, that film made so much money, I don't think anyone cares if it ends up being rushed. Yeah, the thing that that kind of gets me about Colin Trevorrow is, like, I'm starting to wonder, did everyone see the same safety not guaranteed that I did? Because whilst it was perfectly fun, I didn't kind of think at any point, God, this guy's a maverick talent. Mm. The, the, I didn't feel in any way, this, like, the way I did when I saw Brick, or even like The Brothers Bloom, which is a film we've talked about before. It is, should we say, to put it kindly, got away from him a little bit. Mm. He kind of uh, lost kind of kind of grip on that slippery fish. But still, it's kind of got so much in it. It's uh, got a lot going for it. But yeah, you watch Safety Not Guaranteed and you think, well, that's cool. But not let's give this guy, you know, 250 million and like, the keys to the kingdom. Mm. And with the, we know J.J. Abrams, he's directed four films by the time he was given Star Wars and Ryan Johnson has three films, one of which was a very ambitious sci-fi film. Mm -hmm. So you kind of think those guys, it feels like a natural progression, whereas uh, Colin Trevorrow went from small indie film to third most highest grossing film of all time (laughs) to... uh, to like Star Wars. And the, the leaps in his career are, you know, they kind of defy logic you know it's even 
someone like Joss Whedon, the jump in his career, you kind of think, well, he did produce like four or five television shows. He, mm. he had a, he put in his 10,000 hours, whereas you kind of get the feeling that Colin Trevorrow hasn't and that he must be just a really good, he must be really good at pitching in the room because I think that was, uh, you know, when, when Spielberg talks about what uh, drew him to offer the job to, to him was hearing his pitch for it and also... You know, just being really impressed. He said with the 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 way that uh, safety not guaranteed ended, he felt that he made a smart choice there. So his career is based seemingly on one smart choice and being really good in that pitching. Mm. So we'll we'll see how it goes. I reckon he's got like George Lucas's sex tape. <laughs> That's probably the only thing I can think of. Because like I say, yeah, man, you know, safety not guaranteed is a is a good film. It's fun. Yeah, but it, yeah, I'm not really sure how he's kind of managed to blag his way in there. Hopefully he'll find a room for a starring role for Aubrey Plaza in uh, in Star Wars Nine. I hope so. She could play like a kind of a moth on on a bridge of an Imperial battle cruiser, just really kind of miserably kind of like destroying rebel bases with a push of a button. Yeah, she's just kind of sitting around thinking, "Oh, this war's so boring." Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But she's got a heart of gold at the end. You mentioned Rogue One. There, we've got our first look at Rogue One in terms of like actual kind of cast photo. It kind of looks all grubby and kind of like men on a mission type thing, uh, which is kind of awesome. But at the same time, we had a few surprises when the cast was announced because I didn't realise that Mads Mikkelsen's in it, which can only improve something tenfold. Yeah, I think this was the first time it had been announced and uh, I'm very, very pleased with that. But when I looked at the rest of the cast list, I kind of thought, I really hope that what it is is just two hours, a static shot of Ben Mendelsohn and Mads Mikkelsen just kind of staring at each other and trying to be more unnerving, while the rest of the cast kind of just cower and wonder who's going to get stabbed. Yeah, looking at the cast, there's a couple of Chop Socky guys in there. Uh, Zhang Wen and Donnie Yen are in there, and there's also Diego Luna, who is great in kind of pretty much everything. Riz Ahmed, who yeah. is great in Four Lions and Nightcrawler. Yep, absolutely. And I can also now say I've worked with someone in the Star Wars universe. Nice. Felicity Jones is obviously the lead, but um, Forrest Whitaker is someone else who, who was kind of announced very quietly a few weeks ago, or maybe a few months ago, but I've kind of forgotten about. Uh, yeah, I think that could be fun. Yeah, it's, it certainly sounds like a pretty great cast, and I'm looking forward to seeing how, if they really uh, commit to the idea that these Star Wars stories, as they're called now, instead of uh, anthology films, mm. whether or not uh, they really commit to the idea that they're going to try them in different genres. Because the idea of a Star Wars Man on a Mission movie and of one that's not wedded to the kind of the timeline of the main Star Wars films that can just kind of bounce around in time uh, certainly sounds very appealing to me, and particularly when you assemble kind of a, a hot roster of talent like that. Mm. But it is wedded to what the, the, the Star Wars stuff, because it's about them stealing the plans of the Death Star. Yeah, but it's not like, it's not wedded to the three that are upcoming, I mean. Oh, it's okay. Like, it's not like you have to watch Episode 7 and then you can't see Episode 8 before seeing Rogue One. Yeah. You know, so it's like, it, they're, they're, they're separate stories that all take place in the same universe, but it's not kind of a Marvel thing where in between Avengers movies, you have to watch like three films. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I agree. That, that, that would be terrible. Disneyland's getting a big expansion. Uh, they're going to add a whole lot of stuff to that, including a Star Wars land, an Avatar bit, uh, a Toy Story land, and a Frozen section. Yeah, my commute's going to get fucking terrible. Yeah. <laughs> I can imagine in sort of two years' time when the, the parks open, it's just going to be absolute bedlam here in in, in Orlando. Mm. Um, but I'm I'm 
I'm kind of looking forward to it because even when Disney uh, kind of uh, mess up with their films, their rides are pretty much on point. So hopefully, uh, hopefully that'll turn out all right. Yeah, yeah. I mentioned Pixar there. They had a lot on their slate. They had uh, they showed a bit more of the Good Dinosaur. They announced that their kind of Mexican Day of the Dead themed film is going to be called Coco, uh, but not too much more about it. Then they also kind of told us what Toy Story Four is going to be about, which you know I'm very indifferent on and also um they they talked about cars 3 which literally no one cares about because cars is shit yeah uh, i i'm I, i'm quite interested in toy story 4 just because uh it, it always seemed very conspicuous that bo peep wasn't in the third film mm. and now that the fourth film is going to be entirely about her like them trying to go and find her it does kind of make me wonder if they had always planned to do a fourth film or if because I, I can't imagine that there was so much of a scheduling conflict that they couldn't get the actress who voices Bo Peep in. Annie Potts. Is it Annie Potts? Yeah, Annie Potts from the oh, Ghostbusters wow. films, yeah, uh, voices yeah. Bo Peep. So it, it, it's interesting that even if it is just something they came up with because someone at Disney said, you know what, we could use another film that makes over a billion dollars worldwide. Could you kind of rustle one up for us? Um, it, it's, it's nice that they seem to have come up with a plot line that seems to tie in with the first three films or at least the way the third film kind of unfolded really well mm, i'd like to see them doing it as a kind of gritty men on a mission style kind <laughs> of uh, thing like or kind of basically taken but with pixar characters with you know woody kind of hell-bent on revenge i don't know it's more of a dreamworks thing i think yeah i think so the disney animation studios have they showed a little bit of uh, mona or moana is it the their new film is the next uh, film, I believe, uh, which is kind of set in the kind of Pacific Islands and deals with a lot of kind of Maori myth, myths and legends, and uh, features finally The Rock as a as a vocal talent in a Disney film. I'm not actually sure how it's pronounced. I've been saying Mona, but mm. I, I, I get the feeling it, I've been saying it wrong. But I do like the sound of it. I like them going into kind of a area geographically and culturally that they've never done before, and they seem to be approaching it in the right spirit in the terms of wanting to actually explore these stories uh, rather than exploit them. Although I kind of feel like there's always a tiny bit of exploitation in anything Disney do. Um, And The Rock, you know, The Rock's great. He's very charismatic. Mm. And I think that he could do, he'll probably be uh, a good addition to the uh, storied history of celebrities doing voices in Disney films. Yeah. Weird kind of well not weird it's just like they're kind of two movies that we haven't heard about uh for a long time probably because of the kind of very complicated special effects back end work involved but the two live action animation crossovers uh that have been mooted for a long time is uh, john favreau's retelling of the jungle book and pete's dragon which isn't actually very good the original one um yeah. so it'd be kind of cool to see what they do with with it kind of uh like now but all the news coming out of D23 this week, those two things seem to have come out with the most buzz. Yeah, people are saying that the animation in that the Jungle Book in particular is uh, kind of almost revolutionary in how photoreal it is, which mm-hmm. sounds sounds very promising. And, you know, Favreau uh, is after kind of seeming to burn all his bridges in Hollywood by making Chef, in which he basically complains about work to blockbuster filmmaking. Mm-hmm. It's kind of going back to it, which I think is interesting. Hopefully it'll be a bit more reinvigorated and we won't have another Cowboys and Aliens on our hands. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I am looking forward to seeing how that one turns out uh, because 
the Jungle Book here was certainly one of my favorite Disney films growing up. Mm. I think that uh, there's a lot of potential for that one to be good. And and Pete's Dragon, you know, I didn't like that film growing up very much. It was always a bit boring, as pretty much all the live action Disney films were. Mm. And I think that that if they're remaking it, then they're doing it with the right approach, which no one ever seems to do. Which is if you're going to remake a film, remake a bad one. Yeah, and give it a good go. Yeah, I hope they keep that song though, uh, that main one because that's fun. Interesting. I wouldn't have called that at the start of the week that those those two films would, you know, uh, be the most talked about. But hey ho, maybe just the fact that it's not a Star Wars or a Marvel film. Yeah, like, <laughs> something we can talk about that's not those two things. It's like if you looked at the amount of Star Wars news coming out of well, just coming out of this week and D twenty three in particular, it did make me think. You know, I I fucking love Star Wars. Do you know what I mean? I really mm. do. And kind of all this stuff is really exciting. But then it's like three months away, four months away even. And I'm like, I'm not sure how much I can fucking take of this. <laughs> yeah, at a certain point, you're just going to have to try and cut yourself off the yeah. way that um, Ali Gray from the Shiznit tried to cut himself off from all the news about Man of Steel before it was coming out. Mm. Um, which I don't think was something, a deal that really benefited anyone. No. But, um, I think in this case, I think I think some people must be wanting to just kind of cut themselves off, but I'm not sure how possible that is if you have even like the most minor online presence mm. well um probably talk about this a lot when we do our star wars episode uh later in the year but in terms of kind of vacuous uh rumor-led coverage today on a website that i won't mention it's called slash film there was a probably the most vacuous article i think i've ever seen uh which is jj abrahams has said how long the current cut of force awakens is and they have made a two-page article uh, which compares that against the running times of the other films. That is pretty <laughs> terrible, even by their standards. It's quite something. I'd say check it out, but I don't want them to get the clicks and the satisfaction. But yeah, that's yeah. They, I mean, and we've got another four months of this, so fucking awesome. And like, yeah, there's just so much that I can't even be bothered. HBO, like, we're going to be talking about kind of HBO stuff uh, for the bulk of this episode. But a big bit of news that came out this week. Um, which has got people like me very excited, is that there are early stage talks about the possibility of wrapping up Deadwood with a film. Yes, this news broke uh, on th- Wednesday or Thursday, I think, when Garrett Dillahunt said that there were credible rumours uh, that they were going to be making a film finally nine years after the, <laughs> the show went off the air, uh, which is... Uh, you know, these things always have to be taken with a pinch of salt because it's the sort of thing that gets talked about all the damn time. Mm. <laughs> but um, the the fact that HBO kind of begrudgingly admitted that they were in talks means that this is the kind of the closest we've got to the idea to the films actually happening to since maybe 2008 when people were still talking of there being two TV movies to wrap the show up. Mm. It's odd, isn't it? Like how in the show, the passage of time is relatively short because a lot of those people in the show and the events of the show are real they've actually really happened but we've actually now had a massive gap and i don't know how that's going to affect it it would be interesting if they go with the same amount of time that has passed between the in the show and and in the real world because i think during that period of time it would have covered the town of deadwood pretty much burning to the ground mm. which uh, if i remember correctly was going to be a big part of the fourth season if not the finale of the fourth season would have been about the town burning down um and was something they kind of hinted at in the third season because they'd be they would occasionally people would make kind of offhand references to 
you know, poor safety and things like that. Mm. But so I think if there's a reason for it to come back, certainly it would make sense in terms of, you know, having to rebuild all the sets because in reality, uh, those buildings weren't there anymore because they're all completely destroyed. And there is a certain, um, I don't know, kind of uh, a metaphorical richness to that in the Deadwood burnt to the ground and then Swearingen and everyone rebuilt it and you know the gem saloon people say was even more glorious when it came back Mm. and you kind of think you know if deadwood comes back from the ashes after nine years and you know there's something quite nice in that yeah yeah absolutely i mean they i think they may be to mitigate the fact that everyone's aged 10 years um why don't they try doing what they did with wet hot american summer and make (laughs) make a prequel but have everyone 10 years older uh i think that'd be hilarious Ian McShane rolls up and he's like bright eyed and idealistic and he's like he's gonna make something of himself and he slowly gets corrupted. Mm. Deadwood babies. Let's have Deadwood babies. Um have um, you have you seen Ant Man yet? I haven't, no. Uh well the, the kind of the opening of that film is a flashback to the sixties, um, with Tony Stark's old man and young Michael Douglas. But it's Michael Douglas now, but he's CGI'd his face. Well he hasn't oh. done it, someone's done it. And like they do it to all the actors, and the only reason that you don't buy it with Michael Douglas is because you know he doesn't look like that. Um, yeah, but it's it's really... so it's so realistic because like one of the other actors who is you know I didn't recognise comes in later as like, the age he is now, and I was like, man, that's fucking amazing. Maybe they could do yeah, that with Deadwood. You know, it's, it's an expensive show to make anyway. Let's just you know <laughs> just th- throw good money after bad. Uh, I'm. I'm interested to think what HBO's thinking was in choosing Deadwood to bring back. I think it was. They just looked at their slate of shows to revive, mm. and it was one of the only ones where the entire cast didn't die or where, you know, the creator would actually want to bring it back. Mm. You know, if they were to do a, t- a kind of revival of The Sopranos, it would just be a black screen for six hours. Yeah, or John from Cincinnati. Uh, surely there's <laughs> going to be some holdout for that. Um, what else is going on HBO land this week? Uh, it was announced that HBO were going to, uh, for the next five years, be funding Sesame Street and and airing it, having exclusive uh, first play rights to Sesame Street, mm. which uh, is news that has been met with consternation online for the very, very good reason that Sesame Street was created as a public service show for basically lower income kids to try and help them learn and catch up and get back kids who lived in better school districts. And so now it will be on a premium show where only rich kids can see it first. And obviously those same kids would be able to watch it on PBS afterwards, but there is some kind of kind of heartbreaking symbolism to the idea of a public broadcaster having to go to the uh, private sector to continue to exist. Mm. I like the idea that characters from HBO shows will appear as guests on Sesame Street. Uh, I'm well, sure. I'm sure this has already been mashed up, but Omar Little coming on to kind of you know talk about like stash houses and <laughs> ripping and running and how else can you learn to uh, to uh, kind of count and add up other than you know kind of making sure that you know a package is is not not down and and you got your re up sorted. If they can get Idris Elba back as Stringer Bell to kind of do his his whole uh, economic seminar thing again, mm-hmm. but but for kids, I think it'd be all worth it. It is actually weird because obviously Sesame Street is a show written by um, adults and uh, assumingly they watch a lot of HBO because if you look at some of their parodies over the years, they have parodied a lot of age-inappropriate HBO shows. They did 
an episode of Boardwalk based on Boardwalk Empire. They did one based on uh, True Blood. <laughs> you know, so I think this is. I, I, I'd like to think those were laying the groundwork for an eventual team up. Mm, yeah, David Simon's uh, got a new show out. Very exciting. It's a mini series, is it? Yeah, a mini series about public housing in New York in uh, in Yonkers. Can't wait. Which I love. Can't wait. I love public housing. Yeah, it's uh, getting great reviews, and those have been pissing me off all week because pretty much every article I've read on it has been describing it as a comeback, mm. uh, as if to say, "Oh yeah, he made the wire, and then he completely flamed out or something." Or they all or they all seem to be buying into a narrative which says that Treme was some kind of absolute train wreck shit show. Which it wasn't. Tremay was really good. It just didn't find a big audience, mm. and you know, neither did the wire. <laughs> you know, it seems to be they they're thinking, you know, oh, he made this one show that everyone kind of raves about, and the second one was only kind of moderately acclaimed. Mm. Then it's some sort of massive failing, and I think that they're holding him to a kind of an insane standard. And also forgetting uh, Generation Kill, which was fantastic. Yeah, uh, but also this week they, he announced he's got two more shows in the running in the in the works. One of which, a a show set in the porn world of the nineteen seventies New York with James Franco in a dual role. Wow, which sounds crazy and also fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm kind of sold. It's fitting that we kind of end the news uh, section uh, talking about HBO because uh, we're going to talk about kind of one of HBO's prime studs uh, of its stable. We're talking about True Detective, a show whose first season we were enormous fans of, so much so that we did an episode all about it ages ago, which we'll link to in the uh, the show notes for this one. But yeah, the, the second season finished last Sunday, so we could go today, and it's got quite a lot of attention because, I mean, if we're going to sum it up, Ed, talk about difficult fucking second album syndrome. Yeah, in the um, the episode we recorded last year, I said that the, the the anthology structure was kind of bold, but also was setting up Nick Pesilato with, uh, you know, to fail because his two options were to repeat the same thing again, but with different actors or to go in a different route uh, and risk alienating the audience. And he chose the second option, which, you know, bully for him. But the uh, end results were less than less than stellar. Mm, I've seen the show uh, described as uh, kind of dreadful, as kind of a you know kind of taking what was kind of a critical darling and turning it into uh, the the show that people like to hate watch. It's nowhere near as bad uh, as as any of those things suggest, um, but it's nowhere near as good as even the the kind of the worst moments of of season one. Yeah, it's a pretty huge step down, and I think that. Uh, it's very interesting because when I was kind of picking apart the show and, and thinking why the second series didn't really work for me, I realised that because of the very conception of True Detective where every season has to be a different thing and they can't, you know, bring characters back or anything uh, or they can't, or they have to try and differentiate it, all of the stuff that uh, we cited in that first episode and which a lot of people cited as being the strong, the big strong element about the first season was completely missing. Like, you had different directors every episode, so there wasn't kind of a strong hand kind of driving it visually and also seemingly not reigning in terrible performances. Mm. Um, and there was no kind of gothic horror elements, which was kind of a big thing that set the first one apart. Uh, there was the characters weren't particularly well drawn or if they were well drawn, they were kept completely separate from each other. So was, there was none of that 
fun interplay that we had last year and all of these things are kind of you know they're not a bug they're a feature kind Mm. of because the show had to be different but it was different in ways that you know were terribly interesting a lot of the time Mm. i think what surprised me about this second season which i watched in pretty much two sittings is just how heavy handed it was in a lot of places how Mm. plot heavy it was rather than story heavy because those two are are different things and just how kind of exposition heavy it was Uh, i've said the heavy like three times uh in this but kind of like principally kind of the problem was there was just it just seemed structurally like a real mess it was uh it was noted in a few reviews and it's just really kind of clear that the show kind of stops and starts all over again in the middle, whereas the the, the kind of the crime they're investigating wraps up uh, conveniently for some members of the, of the show, um, and then the people investigating it kind of stop and like oh, okay, a period of time passes, and then they're like oh we need to investigate this again, and they start all over again. Yeah, and what's interesting about it to me is that from the off, I thought this is like kind of a very clumsy attempt to ape the style of James Elroy. Mm. And that happens a lot in his fiction. LA Confidential has exactly the same structure. (laughs) Um, It has, you know, a burst of early activity. Then there's a shootout in which the apparent villains are killed. And then there's a big jump of, in the book, like several years. But I think in in this, it's only a couple of months. But essentially the same thing. And then the the cops find themselves kind of drawn back into it. Uh, But there... In, in LA Confidential, the characters are really well drawn and you understand why they would want to be drawn back for this for a moral crusade, whereas I never really got the sense that of who any of these characters were. Mm. They're all kind of very sketchily drawn archetypes. And occasionally, like, I thought Rachel McAdams' performance was pretty great throughout for what she was given, mm-hmm. but it never felt... Like, none of them felt had that same feeling of when you're watching the first season and as soon as you know, Rust shows up on screen. He's like this indelible, iconic character that you're never going to forget. Yeah. And in this one, like, I couldn't tell you what any of their, their names were. In my head, it's just like, oh yeah, there's uh, Dorothy Mantooth's son. Mm-hmm. There's Tim Riggins. There's Alexander the Great. Mm-hmm. There's Regina George. It's like, that was just in my head. That's all they were. They were just characters they've played before. They never felt like any of them were real people. Yeah, it was quite kind of, disheartening you know how good the characters are in season one as to how kind of like they almost kind of ciphers really for a for a kind of clunky kind of pulp plot uh, which has been done a million times better um, many times before the big differences between season one and season two is what screenwriters like to call show and tell Uh, in, Mm. in season one they show you things and it's up to you to to kind of fill in the blanks they would show characters giving an interview uh, under oath where we kind of see them say a certain thing, but then we are showing them doing something contrary to what they said. In season two, however, we are just told a lot of things. We are told facts about characters. They tell us openly things. They talk about the plot. They talk about the machinations of what they're thinking of doing. The villains openly discuss (laughs) nefarious plans in front of uh, open windows where people can hear them. It's very much everything's kind of on the table and you're being kind of walked through it and which makes it even more disturbing that I was quite confused as to what was happening a lot of time. I didn't really kind of, it wasn't, 
it was kind of sprawling in the way that LA Confidential is, and a lot of those kind of James Elroy things are. But like after a while, it just became names, and I'm like, oh, it's just that dude, that dude, that dude. I would I wouldn't have a clue who people were if unless I knew the actor's name. I was generally kind of kind of just following the the twists and turns of of some screenwriter trying to make it interesting when it wasn't. Yeah, and a lot of the time, like they would mention just a character's name and it would take me minutes at a time to figure out who that was. Mm. Because like it'd be like they're talking about someone who died. It's like, wait, who wait, which one was that that got killed? I, mm. know, I have no idea. Yeah. And like the first season's plot wasn't like super clear until the end. You know, it was a mystery and the whole thing of a mystery is you basically just you know, everything is wrapped up by the end. You don't really want people to, to kind of figure it out too early. And when it's a TV show and it's spread over eight episodes, that means that people have to be kept in the dark for at least six or seven of them. Mm. And that's fine. But last year you had the kind of supernatural elements, which were obviously not in the end, not actually supernatural, but they added a kind of a certain flavor to it that made it fun to discuss online and to dig into all these kind of occult references and things like that. You also had the personal mystery of like, why these two guys fall out with each other and, you know, why have they not seen each other in a decade and things like that. And then you also had um, the, the the interplay between Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. So even if the plot wasn't particularly interesting or you kind of didn't know what was going on, those two guys, you know, we said that you could watch, that if the you cut every scene from the first season to down to just them two sitting in cars talking, mm. it would be it'd be still immensely watchable and immensely fun. And this year, because the characters were so kind of spread out and they only ever ever crossed over sort of towards the end when their main job was to explain the plot to each other, it it was just never really that satisfying on a character or an atmosphere level in the way that the first one was. Mm. Uh, well, the, the, and the big difference is the mystery in, in season one was compelling. Uh, yes. Whereas uh, the mystery in season two was just a perfunctory tour around plot points essentially like i the the kid the 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 brother and sister who turned out to have done it in the end okay sure i don't really understand why i'm supposed to care to that point like uh, characters that are briefly mentioned at some point and then other characters which aren't really part of it were part of this big conspiracy which involved land of deals of some kind and and water being poisoned and Prince Vaughn's in it for some reason and I don't understand it, it felt like there's, there's something that's weird about this is that I think when we did the first episode we talked about what season two was going to be about because the kind of uh, online wags had the hashtag true detective season two going around straight away uh, kind of speculating as to who would be the pairing in the second one and it didn't take long for uh, the show's creators to release a statement about what season two would be about and I believe I'm not I didn't look this up but I believe it was something along the lines of uh, it said something like it's about hard men harder women and the secret occult history of the American public transport network does that sound about right uh, I think that's pretty much exactly it yeah yeah so that was announced and then very shortly afterwards we didn't really get the hard women thing obviously Rachel McAdams is in it but she is definitely not the main character no and they removed all the occult stuff. And then there's some stuff about like rail networks, which kind of could have been interesting, but then it's kind of not in it. And it almost feels like they kind of shot 
like what was left after some interesting things were cut out. Mm. Yeah, it kind of because I think um, Nick Pezzolato has said that he changed his initial conception based on some of the criticism that was coming out. Um, so he cut some characters, he uh, reworked it in some ways, and on the one level, I think it's nice that he responded to criticism well, but at the same time, I feel like uh, he maybe overcompensated. I didn't really have a huge problem with how last season ended. A lot of people no. seem to say it was a cop-out, whereas I like totally disagree, because given how kind of cynical to the point of uh, being almost kind of nihilistic, the character of Cole was, um, to actually see him see any kind of sliver of good in the world was is kind of insane and kind of like actually a very brave choice. But anyway, that's probably, we probably even said those exact same words in, in the last one. Um, the one thing uh, that was glaringly obvious to me is that there didn't seem to be any kind of connection between the show and the events of the show and the setting. Um, mm. In season one, Louisiana was like, you know, people say, oh, the location is a character in this film or in this TV show or whatever. In season one, it was like more than that. It was, you know, the the location provided layers and layers and layers of like culture and history that played into pretty much everything that happens. Mm. In that is kind of like so kind of intrinsically woven into the fabric of the story. Uh, they're kind of like inseparable and they kind of reach for it in season two, but ultimately just end up with, oh, let's send out an aerial cameraman for like six weeks because <laughs> there's a lot of area. I mean, it's, it reminded me a little bit of the Garth Marenghi. If you're running short, put it in slow motion. Whereas True Detective seemed to be like, stick some aerial footage in there. It'd be fine. Yeah, we're five minutes short. How many shots of motorways can you put in? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I had exactly the same sort of feeling because the, the, the Louisiana, you kind of, it, it adds so much to the mood and the texture and the isolation of their locations in the first season were a big part of what made that show so scary. Mm. Because it's not just the fact that they were kind of going out and investigating these bodies or they were investigating, you know, uh, these kind of, you know, uh, derelict schoolyards. It's the fact that they were investing. Uh, they were investigating these things in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, you know, there was just like there was just empty places. Anyone could be watching them. They could be completely on their own. There could be people hiding five foot away from them. And it was kind of intrinsic to the tone of the show. And this year, it it seemed to have been made by people who have never been to Los Angeles. Mm. It's like it, or they've only seen it on films. It just kind of had this. It didn't have any specificity to it in the way that the first season had with Louisiana. And this was pointed out brilliantly by Wired, who did an article where they worked out how much, how far the characters would have had to have driven in each episode uh, to get from LA to sort of Monterey, California, where a lot of the action took place. Mm. And they worked out that they were driving four to five hundred miles a day. <laughs> Because they were just driving from place to place, often for conversations that would last maybe five minutes. Yeah. And then they would drive all the way back and it would still be daylight. And it seemed to be just taking place in this kind of fancy version of California that didn't really seem to connect to anything. And I think that's a small detail. I think it's something that only people from L.A. really kind of uh, lodged onto or wherever Wired's based. Mm. But I think it does speak to something that when... They basically seem to pay no attention to the tiny details, and that runs through the entire show, where everything just seemed to be 
very general, the characters were archetypes, the dialogue felt boilerplate, unless it was coming out of Vince Vaughn, in which case it was the most awkwardly delivered dialogue you've ever heard. Mm. Um, and that's, I don't think that's necessarily a problem with Vince Vaughn's character, it's just that he was given impossible words to say. Mm. <laughs> like, there was one bit where he would just kind of like said, well, after being fucked all day by everyone, I drilled a new orifice so I could fuck myself. It's like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's, <laughs> Who speaks like this? <laughs> it's nowhere near as bad as the bit where Colin Farrell decides to take on his son's bully and his dad, and he says something like, I'm going to come and butt fuck your dad with your mum's headless body or something? Yeah, it was just like, it's really bad. Also, Colin Farrell, after a while, I, I couldn't take him seriously just because I realised his accent was basically Jesse the Body Ventura, but kind of really mellow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just that Once I got that into my head, it's just like, yeah, this guy, he's just mumbling to hide his, his Irish accent and it's not really working. What did you kind of make of Vince Vaughn? Because a lot was made of, of his casting and I was actually really excited by his casting because I do think that he's a really good actor who is for probably through mostly his fault uh, in an awful lot of shit films. He's kind of, at this point, nearly the white Eddie Murphy, but he <laughs> is... Well, yeah, that might be unfair. <laughs> But, no, I think it's perfectly accurate. I hadn't thought of him that way, but I think he's reaching that level. But yeah, he's in, like you say, he's he's not really given a lot to work with uh, in some bits. But then there are moments, kind of in the middle, where he kind of has to kind of play gangster, I suppose, or he has to kind of display some modicum of emotion. Where I I really get flashes of you know he really did used to you know have something. Yeah, I think that. There was there was enough in his performance, like his whole monologue about the rat, was it in the second episode where he's talking about being locked up in the basement and beating something to death, mm. or the whole the episode where he you know beats the living shit out of that guy, where you kind of think this guy has the physicality and the demeanor to be a really imposing villain, mm. and I think he was the perfect choice for that role in this series, but the right the writing let him down at every opportunity, and I think that again. One of the things that I think is is big difference this time is that last year Carrie Fukunaga directed, uh, sorry, Carrie Fukunaga directed every episode, and this year it was kind of a mixture of different people, and you kind of get the sense from that absence of a single director that last year maybe some of the excesses of Pizzolatto's writing were mollified by having a really strong creative voice shooting the whole thing, mm-hmm. and maybe they were there to kind of modify the performances or work with the actors to get something that really worked. And this time, because you had four or five directors, you know, no one kind, maybe no one had the, uh, felt they had the authority to tell Vince Vaughn to change the, the writing or to kind of maybe alter the delivery. And then he just kind of went with whatever he had, mm. you know, what was ever on the page. And that ended up kind of really uh, undermining him at, at every stage. Mm. It's a real shame because I feel like with, a kind of a bit like you know a bit more time and a better script and the same cast they probably could have made a decent film out a decent tv show out of that but as it is um i mean taylor kitsch was a passenger throughout pretty much all of the show he i mean like to kind of try and add a dimension to a character who is literally so bland it's unbelievable by saying oh yeah he was gay and then like expect it to make him more interesting and more sympathetic or anything is kind of stupid. Hmm. And he also, that his, the, the, his death was also all the deaths of the three main characters, the, the three male characters 
all felt a little cheap to me. Mm. Like they really felt like he'd taken the criticism of the finale of last year to heart and decided, well, I'm just going to have everyone die. But his felt, um, his was the one that felt the most earned because it was built up in a really nice way. And it had that great chase through all the tunnels and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, there's still a certain cheapness to it. And, and that whole chase was the thing that reminded me, you know, the, the first season was so good and it had kind of these great tense moments and there were really great tense moments throughout the second season but they were so kind of sporadically kind of doled out that it never kind of cohered. And they were really more just kind of like bright spots as opposed to highlights mm. in the way that they were the first year. Yeah, Colin Farrell's was bad. It was uh, kind of went all, it all went a bit first blood, didn't it? Uh, and then he, yeah. got, he got a slow motion death, which was kind of just felt so out of place. And Vince Vaughn had a kind of a weird dream sequency thing, which was fucking awful it was like how it was Holly, Hollyoaks or something it was terrible uh, although... it was awful it was awful and it also it seemed to be someone pointed this I think Sam Adams pointed this out on IndieWire that he dies from exactly the same wound that Rust didn't die from in the first season finale because mm. he was also stabbed in the stomach in pretty much the same way yeah. and that again kind of is an unfortunate echo or a sense that maybe Listened to the to criticism and then you know took responded incorrectly to it. Yeah, I'd just like to point out that for me the the season's absolute nadir was the episode uh, which I think is known now as the sex party episode. I think mm. it's season six. Uh, sorry, uh, episode six. And I'll tell you for why it's it's bad. I did see the the phrase um, tonal ping pong. Uh, no, tonal pinball, I think the phrase was, bandied around, which actually feels like it's underselling it. That is, that was terrible. That whole kind of the last 20 minutes of that episode uh, in which Rachel McAdams uh, suddenly goes undercover in a kind of like a high class sex party. It's basically eyes wide shut and basically kind of encounters a sex party that you would imagine if you were 15 possibly <laughs> like and i i'm going to be kind of uh, like open and honest here like in my kind of like early 20s i wrote what i thought was an ingenious thriller which at one point had a guy go into a kind of high class sex party and uh yeah kind of various kind of drug things happened and i'd say that like the episode six of True Detective season two made the shit that I churned out at age like 22 look kind of classy <laughs> um, because that was, it was just so kind of odd and mismatched. And like, there was a bit where it kind of turned into a, a Bond movie, like the Colin Farrell and Taylor Kitsch were like uh, kind of sleeper holding guards um, yeah. at the things. And then they were kind of, they'd just run to a thing where two main characters were signing their names on important documents that might incriminate them later. And you're yeah, doing that in front of full view of everyone. And then she goes all kind of La Femme Nikita and kind of stabs up a bunch of people. Then just finds someone that she was looking for in since episode one, which was probably kind of, which we thought was kind of totally kind of not, important at all and then all of a sudden turned out to be kind of important but then not really um mm-hmm. and then they kind of rescue her and then there's this big kind of like true lies chase away from the thing and then the whole scene is scored to the most ridiculously overblown orchestral score i think i've ever heard and it just it the whole thing is preposterous yeah and also it was it the, the idea of it being tonal pinball was 
underlined by the fact that from not even from scene to scene, literally from second to second, it was like kind of leery, kind of dark comedy and like, you know, oh, look how ridiculous all that sex is to genuinely menacing when she's kind of being assaulted by a guy mm. to kind of, you know, uh, you know, exciting action adventure chase stuff. And it, it didn't have any, I think it seemed to be primed as, you know, this season's answer to the single take uh, escape in the in the raid in the first season mm. you know the idea of this is like a big thing that kind of really has a huge impact later but it just never cohered that way and you just kind of felt they were really struggling mm. or that you know they'd gotten six episodes in and they're like oh shit we haven't met the hbo tits criteria you know we need more more tna and mm. they just kind of all crammed it in for no good reason yeah yeah it was it was kind of, I think you you hit the nail on the head there. It kind of summed up the the season's problems in one word: it, incoherent. Yeah, you know there is some good stuff in this season, but not enough of it, and not regularly enough, and then too much of other stuff which makes no sense, and too much of other stuff which just isn't fun to watch. A lot of it was kind of like a misery uh, parade, <laughs> if I'm mm. honest, uh, with characters who who didn't really seem to have a great deal for live to live for. Um, no. <laughs> whereas uh, there was some kind of light in 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 the characters, or or just something to for the audience to kind of connect with and want to follow the people on this journey. Whereas in in kind of this season, it was just darkness and Taylor Kitsch's motorcycle face. Mm, which... Yeah, and or and and literally no humor. Mm. Like like at least last year, whenever. Rust would kind of go on his, you know, kind of nihilistic rants and something. At some point, Marty would just kind of roll his eyes or just tell him to shut the fuck up, mm. as if to just kind of like puncture the kind of dour pomposity of it all. Mm. And there was just none of it this year. It was just consistently dour from episode to episode, minute to minute. There was like there was just no life to it. It felt like, you know, a any any cop show on any network but with slightly fouler language mm. and you know and uh, slightly more gruesome violence there was nothing that made you think this you know this needs to be on hbo <laughs> yeah um there was a funny bit in it in the penultimate episode which i actually think was the strongest episode actually well no mm-hmm. it wasn't it was in the last episode where vince vaughn who his uh, wife, who was actually a pretty good Kelly Riley, British actress, was actually one of the, the, the kind of bright spots for me. She tells him he's an unconvincing liar, and he <laughs> decides to prove it by throwing his wedding ring out of the, the train station door. And then she does likewise, and he says, that was a really big diamond. <laughs> yeah. um, that was a funny moment. But other, other than la- that, it was pretty light. I also laughed, uh, I think it was in the penultimate episode or it could have been the finale really those two episodes kind of just blend together for me mm. but it was when uh vince vaughn is b- uh burning down all of his casinos and like the comedy russian henchman comes up to him and says because he's told everyone there's a gas leak and so he's about he's caught got everyone uh, evacuated out of the building and he goes up and says where is gas leak <laughs> and like vince vaughn just kind of like points he says oh it's uh and as the guy turns around he just shoots him in the back of the head yeah <laughs> And it was really funny because it's the most half-assed headshot I've seen since um, when Dennis Hopper shoots his chauffeur in Land of the Dead, mm. which is also really funny because it's really abrupt and also just kind of one of those things where you think, oh yeah, I guess it would be really easy to shoot someone in the head if you just tell them <laughs> to look at something. Um, but yeah, so that was that was the moment that really made me laugh because I 
but I also couldn't tell if it was meant to be funny <laughs> mm. or if it was just kind of so just kind of like bang that it, it, it ended up being kind of abrupt and and shocking. Mm. I just like to point out as well that like somewhere in in California there's a bar where um, they have a singer songwriter performing the most miserable residency <laughs> any anywhere on earth. Because uh, as much as that stuff's awesome in a trailer, she like she she's playing there every night and it's diegetic and it's kind of just like oh, okay, you're using this music to set the tone, then you do it once and then oh, you're gonna do it again, oh, and then three times, then four times, but then in the middle you're gonna have a weird dream sequence with like a kind of I'm gonna say Elvis impersonator, but it's not Elvis impersonating that person's supposed to be impersonating, and that yeah, it yeah, it's just a mishmash of kind of half ideas and full ideas that weren't probably good enough uh, mixed in with some good actors struggling to find something to get their teeth into. I think that's probably a fair assessment. Yeah, I, I get the sense that if they had focused on any one of those storylines and made that the one story, mm-hmm. like if they really dug into Rachel McAdams' story or they'd really dug into the Vince Vaughn and Colin Farrell relationship or if they'd really, you know, kind of made any kind of effort to make all the bullshit with his son interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um which I think was only included because uh, so that people could make the pun about it being a red herring. Yeah, which, that's very uh, good. Which uh, I, I imagine lots of people have made, but I was very pleased when I thought about it earlier. Mm. But um, yeah, it, it just kind of felt like any one of these stories, if you made that the subject for eight episodes and they were all really kind of, you kind of went in depth with it, it could have been really good. But because you had three separate storylines, essentially, which eventually entwined, but not in an interesting way, mm. Uh, it just wasn't really anything to write home about. And you ended up with lots of characters on the sidelines, which could have been interesting, like Colin Farrell's ex-wife, or, you know, that whole relationship could have been really interesting if she wasn't in, like, four scenes of eight episodes. Yeah. Um, it just and felt it's like a- there was... Abigail Spencer from uh, Rectify, uh, who yes. is an amazing actress, and anyone who's seen Rectify uh, will kind of contend to that's kind of how you do a compelling drama. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they didn't even have, like, last year at least, they had Kevin Dunn as, like, a compelling minor character as their chief, at the you know, when they're investigating the crime in the 90s. Mm. Whereas every kind of supporting character in this, like, particularly all the cops, they were just all really faceless. Yeah. And they just kind of all blended together. So when it became apparent that the guy who died in the, the, the shootout at the end of the fourth episode was actually someone who had important knowledge, he was just kind of like, wait, who the hell was that guy? Mm. It's just like, it was just a cop. It's Dan from Deadwood. As well, yeah. That's again wasting a a fun member of the HBO rec, rep company. Mm. So, where next for True Detective Ed? I would like to see them take like two or three years off. <laughs> like, I, I I really do feel like this season suffered from that thing that Noel Gallagher said about you know when Oasis were releasing their second album, where you have your whole life to write the first album and eighteen months to write the second one. Mm. You know, I feel like. The fact that he that Nick Pizzolatto was already writing the scripts when the first season was airing, and then they had to get it all out pretty much like a year and a bit later, that wasn't really enough time for them to make sure all the scripts were really good. Mm. Uh, particularly for someone who is a novelist by trade, who's probably used to doing lots of research and spending a lot of time kind of labouring over everything. So I feel if he adopted the David Chase model of just making the show when he's ready, then that might help it. And I think you know, uh, maybe go somewhere a bit more northern, you know, maybe set it well, in Alaska like or something. Doncaster. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. Doncaster. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think that setting it somewhere maybe that, again, somewhere that doesn't really have cop shows, cop stories set there or, or very often, you know, I think one of the things about the first season that worked was that the idea of a story set in Louisiana was novel. You know, it's not a, a area that is terribly well covered. So, you know, somewhere in the Midwest that, you know, wouldn't overlap too much with what Fargo are doing. Mm. You know, I think that would be very interesting. Yeah. It's a cop show set in Cleveland. <laughs> and I, 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 I mean near Middlesbrough. Uh, you know, anyway, I don't really know where it is to go. Although I was de- kind of daydreaming through one of the episodes because it was kind of, uh, didn't, wasn't really holding my attention. And I was just thinking, imagine if they managed to talk Jack Nicholson into doing two weeks work on True Detective season three and made him the kind of Noah Cross of some kind of weird, horrible story. <laughs> Cause I thought that this episode was going to kind of go down that old Hollywood route, that kind of. Mm. Uh, weird kind of Hollywood Babylon seedy undercurrent type thing. But it was just shit. It was just, oh, it's, <laughs> you know, the, it's just a dude who's a set photographer on a Mad Max knockoff. What? Jesus. Yeah. I didn't really understand what was going on. Anyway, fuck True Detective Season 2 uh, <laughs> because uh, you've let us down. Uh, imagine what it's going to be like when the second season of Serial starts. Can you imagine? Uh, um, the, the backlash for that will be uh, inescapable. Yeah. Um, but- one, I think also... I think the, the 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 thing that heralded that this season wasn't going to be quite like the first one, even from the first episode, was that the online discussion there was nowhere near as much passion. Mm, oh no! But e- even the people who hated it kind of did it in a very seemed to do it in a very perfunctory way. Whereas last year, the people who hated the show, you know, were quite entertaining about how much they hated it, and the people who loved it, you know, they had all of the Carcosa stuff, the Yellow King stuff to dig into. Whereas this year, it was like. It was so straightforward cop show bullshit mm. that there was no there was no reason to kind of dig in and try and work out plots and stories. It just kind of thought, well, you know, we'll find out who did it in the end. Mm. Well, I think it can be summed up by the opening scene of each series. In the first series, we kind of get a mysterious shot of something on fire and then we kind of move through time to Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson discovering the body of a dead naked woman uh, under a tree and there's some weird occult symbols and she's got a pair of antlers strapped to her head uh, and they're trying to figure it out wordlessly. In season two, Colin Farrell drops his kid off at school. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. That is, that happens. That is how it begins. It it says a lot for kind of, you know, putting down a tonal marker uh, for where you're going to go. And I think uh, season two was kind of off to a losing start. Anyway, let's do uh, Shot Reverse Shot Recommends. I've picked something this week which is kind of very much inspired by the thoughts about uh, True Detective. I did say that True Detective season two uh, kind of tried but failed to connect with uh, where it's set. Um, So I'm going to recommend a book which has got pretty much nothing to do with films. It's a book called uh, City of Quartz uh, by Mike Davis which is a, I suppose, academic text about urbanization. But it's, it is kind of like a cultural history of L.A. in particular. But it's told through like how it was, it's kind of urban planning unfolded, but also what shaped those decisions, what groups shaped those decisions, and, and what kind of intellectuals kind of posit is they're kind of the what it, what is LA is it kind of like you know where dreams are made or is it where they go to die and it is an absolutely fascinating book which uh, I would recommend to everyone who's kind of in any way interested about kind of that 
stuff. I mean, you could just read a load of James Elroy books, and he does talk about James Elroy quite a bit uh, and uh, other noir writers in the 30s, but it's a fascinating kind of look at what's going on under the surface of a city or what cities mean, which I think True Detective Season 2 strives for but never really gets close to. Uh, It's interesting that you did that because I've kind of gone for the same sort of thing, but this is more film-based but also ties into something you directly said, Hollywood Babylon. Mm. Uh, I'm going to recommend a podcast by Karina Longworth called You Must Remember This, which, as she said, is about the secret and or forgotten history of Hollywood's first century. Mm. Uh, It's a really good podcast that's been around for a year or so, but uh, I mentioned it this week because on Tuesday uh, they rounded out, they they ended their 12-episode cycle on uh, the Manson murders. And it's a fascinating 12-episode arc, because not only is it about the murders, but it's also about... As, as an event, but also what they mean culturally. And in doing so, uh, there's an episode about Kenneth Anger, because Kenneth Anger worked with Bobby Beausoleil, who was a member of the Manson family, who ended up committing the first or one of the first Manson murders. Uh, there's an episode on, on uh, Dennis Wilson because of his connection to it. And it's this uh, great sprawling thing that touches on a lot of things that we talk about on this podcast. There's a lot of stuff in there about how the murders, uh, in some sense, created a sense of paranoia in the Hollywood community that you see kind of spread throughout a lot of the films that emerged in the 1970s uh, period of time we talk about every so often. And uh, it's a really great, compelling 12... It's not 12 hours because each episode varies in length, but it's a good, solid uh, eight or nine hours long and you get uh, a really great sense of what the murders meant, of LA, what LA was like in the 60s and how the this was kind of an epochal event that changed it. And it's also just a really great examination of these collection of of really interesting and in some cases horrifying characters. So mm. uh, those the, the whole of uh, you must remember this is really interesting. But that twelve episode cycle is is really quite a, an achievement. Yeah. Also, kind of read inherent vice. <laughs> so if you want to do the same kind of thing as we were talking <laughs> about about kind of connecting uh, culture to location, there you go. There's a yeah. good idea. Okay, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening. Please do check in on our website, which is uh, srspodcast.podbean.com. Uh, there you can find all the links to Twitter, Facebook, Stitcher, and uh, what's it called again? Player FM. Player FM. And, yeah, you can kind of find us uh, through that. Um, if you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe through one of those channels and give us a lovely review because it helps more people find us. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.